3: I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramer. If you want to make friends, I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate and teach, so call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Messianic. That's the word I've been searching for to describe certain parts of this market. And that cult-like attitude, well, suddenly it's got me a little worried. Because stocks ultimately are just pieces of paper. After day where the reopening trade reasserted itself, as I said it would, the Dow gaining 54 points, while the S&P lost 0.4%, and the NASDAQ dropped 0.99%. percent i got to address this dynamic. So what do I mean by messianic? There's a cohort in this market that seems to believe it's a sin to sell anything. Sell anything at sell, all. Sell, sell. Because owning stocks is a cause, a cause, and selling means you're betraying that cause. That's why I'm seeing, that's what I'm seeing right now. Right now, with the blinding light of the cryptocurrencies, any cryptocurrency. And it's starting to make me wonder if some of these followers are on a mental quarantine, especially in their ability to ignore any sign that maybe enough is enough. We first saw the messianic behavior when the Wall Street Bets crew started embracing individual stocks. They turned the tug-of-war over GameStop into an epic fight between the righteous longs and the wicked short sellers. The bettors won. They were able to break the shorts, in part because they demanded fealty. Fealty to Ryan Cohen, the co-founder of Chewy, who took a big position in GameStop and will soon become the chairman of the board there, if not more. These Reddit revolutionaries cheered Ryan's every move. They even cheered his silence. And when they broke the shorts, the stock briefly climbed to $400 before people started ringing the register, ka-ching, ka on mass. But to the GameStop bulls, any sellers were apostates, even at these exalted levels. Don't I know? I called in from the hospital that day, ripping out my catheter, to have just an ounce of dignity, and told people, please, 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 take some money off the table. Sell, sell. For that, I was branded a fool, a even a Mount bunk, Because I didn't grasp Ryan Cohen's brilliant vision. Not that he'd share it with anybody, at that point at least. And I've been on the wrong side of the YOLO ever since. YOLO. When I urged GameStop to sell some stock in order to clean up the balance sheet, I took it on the chin from these people. Oh, my! They turned my Twitter mentions file into an even more of an ad hominem hellscape than usual. How dare I suggest that GameStop raise capital to pay down debt? Of course, that's precisely what the company ultimately did today. And when the move was met, of course, with cheers from the same people who trashed me. The stock surging 18% because in the eyes of his followers, Ryan Cohen can do no wrong. Not that we know who Ryan Cohen is. All right, that is messianic thinking. And frankly, I'm going to take a break from giving free advice on Twitter because Cohen should have paid me for the idea. Now, we saw the struggle to keep AMC alive. There's no call-up uh, surrounding CEO Adam Aaron. So when he decided to save the company by selling a huge slug of stock right into the Wall Street bets more <laughs> the true believers felt betrayed. They wanted everyone to hold the line. But there's the CEO himself asking for authorization to sell another 500 million shares. Tough to hold the line when the company's selling En masse. But the AMC cult is stuck with AMC, or at least AMC's stock. That's an important distinction because, like GameStop, I don't think AMC's actual movie theaters really matter to the people who've turned owning its stock into something that feels a little too much like a religion. Get me Jim Jones on the phone, will ya? All right, anyway, now that messianic behavior's been taken to new heights with admonitions that only true morons will sell any cryptocurrency, oh, of course, not just Bitcoin, but Ethereum, or even the. De- Dogecoin, which was literally created as a joke. When you disagree with the orthodoxy, well, then you run the risk of being excommunicated. Hence the back and forth I had with David Faber this morning about where are the sellers? We couldn't recall anyone coming on air, anyone, and saying, you know what? They were a seller of anything crypto. Not even just to ring the register, maybe take a little profit. Which brings me to Coinbase. You know I like this cryptocurrency exchange. I told you to buy some last night. Lisa Ellison at Moffitt Nathanson, the best payment analyst on Wall Street, thinks it can go to $600 long term. Long term! And I agree with her. But I also worried that this new idol would be so powerful, it would cause all the true believers to sell whatever was necessary to raise cash for Coinbase or anything else crypto, because they were never going to sell crypto. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, This was a $65 billion deal, and it used up a lot of money. Thank heavens it didn't open up higher. Though it, it could have been a huge gut punch, even for the true believers. Now, I've been warning you for months that someday we'd get an IPO so large it could overwhelm the entire market. Too much supply, only so much demand. It may have been Coinbase. Again, I'm not trying to smash this new idol. I think Coinbase is the single best way for mutual funds to get some cryptocurrency exposure. It covers the waterfront of crypto. But I think the lack of sellers in Bitcoin and its compadres has gotten totally messianic. I own some Bitcoin. I've been reluctant to sell, too. Still, I now believe that we're really worshipping greed here. And contra Michael Douglas as Gordon Gecko, greed is not good. And I admit, here it is. As I said, I admit to have taken enough profits in it. To play with the house's money. Yes, that's right. I did a little ka-ching in Bitcoin. Listen, it's a bad idea to turn your portfolio into religion. When you get messianic about money, you forget what it's, what's around you. Maybe you're a single-issue buyer, just crypto or non-fungible tokens. Oh, that's a good one. Or to the four docs of crypto or GameStop, and you ignore everything else around you. But I approach stocks with my eyes open, and none of these idols can prevent things from going wrong. Things like the price of oil, which today you know was just not tame at all. And it needs to be tame, lest it wake up the real devil of inflation. If oil keeps climbing... That's what happens, Okay, You get the bear. And I have to tell you, that's going to force the Federal Reserve's hand to raise interest rates the moment we get a couple decent unemployment numbers. That's going to change the whole landscape. A real move higher in oil, not just a spike, would drive all producer prices much higher, especially if some other commodities like plastic and lumber don't start coming down soon. You can't have oil be the leader. It's got too many followers. Um, I'm sorry, it's got no followers. And let me tell you something. As much as I like Pioneer Natural and Chevron, I don't want this group to be on fire because it's bad for every other group. Yesterday I said we were selling stocks for my travel trust because I was worried the market had gotten overbought. I brought up a bunch of concerns, including the fact that we were seeing too much supply from IPOs. At the same time, all those people who refuse to sell crypto are sucking cash out of every other asset class. We sold a ton more stock today, something you can follow if you join the Plus.com club and take action before I do. I thought we had to. Am I saying the market's in trouble? (laughs) no. I saw some terrific things happen today. Goldman Sachs reported a fabulous quarter, something that makes me think this $335 stock could go to $400. It would still be cheap up there, 10 times earnings. Meanwhile, Charlie Sharp, CEO of Wells Fargo, told a bad enough story that there's now plenty of upside as he works his magic to make the bank better than it used to be. I know, low bar, but I'll take it. And again, I think Coinbase is a real company with real controls, real customers, and real earnings. I like the stock here, but I can't deify it. That's just wrong. It's as wrong as the people who believe GameStop will stay strong as long as they chant, HOLD! Even if it means they have to sell everything else. The bottom line, right now, there are so many cult assets, Coinbase, cryptocurrencies, meme stocks, non-fungible tokens, that the true believers absolutely refuse to sell. So they're dumping everything else they own instead. And that's putting real pressure on the rest of the market. And that, that, is not a good sign. Let's go to Anthony in New Jersey. Anthony. Hey, Jim, how are you? I'm an Action Alerts Club member,
4: and my stock is Lockheed Martin. I purchased it on Weakness last week based on the chart, the weekly chart, and on the aerospace industry. What do you think?
3: Well, look, it's it's, it's Jim Takelet. and we remember him from American Tower, and we think he's just money. I like him. It's got a 2.6% yield. It's got a great order book. I say you're absolutely right. I want you to hold on to it, maybe even buy more if it comes down. Let's go to Carter in Virginia. Carter. Jim, it's uh, Carter. I want to get your feelings on uh, Freeport. We have the earnings next week. We had a good Goldman report today. Yes, we did. But the stock is up very big today. And I've got to tell you, I'm a little concerned. Rich Ackerson happens to be very conservative when uh, when he speaks. So when he reports, he may actually knock down the stock himself. Nice guy, though. All right. Anyway, the true believers in these cult-like assets refuse to sell, no matter what. And I think this messianic thinking will ultimately prove to be a bit of a dangerous sign. With all in on the Coinbase IPO today, I think it's time for an IPO. Oh, no, for retrospective. We're revisiting some 2020 tech IPOs where our caution was proven right. Then, time to pump the brakes? I'm screwing you into five EV SPACs that are guilty of hyperbole and explaining why you should steer clear. And we know COVID changed the face of the restaurant industry, but how soon will we see to get things back to normalcy? I've got exclusive with member him, Panera founder Ron Shake, and the CEO of restaurant point-of-sale company Par Technology. So stick with Kramer. After the biggest stock market debut in ages, with Coinbase coming public at a surprisingly enticing valuation, the stock opened at $381, nearly $100 below the high end of the price range, and then pulled back, giving you an even better entry point, it's the perfect time to circle back to last year's most important deals to see what went wrong and what could go right. There was something tragic about the IPO market in 2020. You had a host of fabulous companies coming public, Yet Wall Street was so addicted to turbocharged growth stories that, for the most part, the prices, they were too high. Often way too high. I try to keep an open mind on questions of valuation, especially when we're talking about disruptive technology plays with spectacular financials. But some of these price-to-sales ratios, well, they got unconscionable. Time after time, I give you the same refrain. Great company, bad price. So try to get at a lower level, try to get at a lower level, try to get, I mean, I I know, I was sick of it myself. While that caution sometimes makes me look like a clown, (laughs) uh, at least initially the IPOs from the class of 2020 has spent the last couple of months rolling over, which is exactly what I was most worried about. If you listened to me and you kept your powder dry, this market's now giving you the chance to buy them at lower levels. So is it finally time to pull the trigger? Or should you keep waiting for additional downside now that these former high flyers have gone out of style on the Wall Street Fashion Show? Let's take a look at last year's highest profile deals one by one. Many of these may have really stung you, but that's okay. We've got to face facts here. We're going to go over the, uh, the highest profile deals that I chimed in on. And we're going to start with Encino. That's little N and big C. You've seen them on twice on the show. Now, Encino is a provider of cloud-based banking software. There really isn't any other product like that. It's backed by by Benioff. On its first day of trading last July, Encino surged to $91. I told you, uh uh-uh, too expensive. The next week, I recommended waiting for a pullback below 68 before pulling the trigger, then watching horror as it zoomed to 104 six weeks later. But then the stock spent the next six months working its way lower, ultimately bottoming at $57. That was last month. And you know what? That was your buy Buy, opportunity. Since then, Encinas rebounded to the low 70s and wake up a great quarter. After speaking to the company several times on the show, now you have got my blessing to dip into it right here. But there's no rush, and I wouldn't put on a serious position until it retreated to the mid-60s. But their stuff works. Banks love it. Next up, Snowflake, the phenomenal data warehousing play with a tremendous triple-digit growth rate. This one was a wake-up call because last September it started trading at 100 times sales. I initially urged caution. Then I got more comfortable with the valuation later in the year before telling you to ring the red shirt at $300. And that was back in January. Well, now, now Snowflake's at 220, $229. That's down $25 bucks from where it opened on its first day of trading. Some of that's due to the rotation. Some of it's because there's no more lockup on insider selling. I'd love to get more bullish on Snowflake, but it's out of step with this market. So why not wait for it to pull back to just, ooh, this sounds bad, just 50 times sales, which would put the stock at 190 where I would also in September. Uh, you know, this, the name sounds dumb, but the company isn't. JFrog came public. Now, this is a software developer, software developer. I was adamant this one was way too pricey when the, from the get-go when it was trading at $64. JFrog's now at $52. Bucks. The valuation is a lot more reasonable at these levels, but again, there's no rush with these software stocks. I'd like it even more below $43. Or 20 times sales, which is roughly in line with last month's lows. Remember, these are sales, time, not earnings. They're, they're expensive. All right, now next up is Amwell, the telemedicine play that came public around the same time. When it was trading in the low 20s, I told you to keep your bat on your shoulder because a bet on Amwell was a bet that stick sticking around for longer than, uh, than expected. I thought it would be more enticing in the high teens. though the stock had a phenomenal run, making me look like a dope. Hey, what what doesn't? (laughs) But as the the great reopening trade's gone into full swing, well, this thing's lost more than two-thirds of its value. Even down here, even at $17, I'd stay away from Amwell because it's too much of a lockdown stock. Then there's GoodRx. That's one of these things I, I use a lot. The fabulous prescription drug comparison tool that can save you a fortune on your meds. Once again, I urge you to wait for lower levels last September. Since then, GoodRx has been kneecapped by Amazon, getting into the pharmacy business, followed by the rotation of the reopening stocks, and then a big lockup expiration, a triple whammy. You got my blessing to speculate in this one now that it's been knocked down to the high 30s. Yes, any pullback from here, I am saying buy, buy, buy. it's a buying opportunity. On the last day of September, we got a pair of direct listings, one of them uh, being Asana, which makes work management software. This one's been a real roller coaster, but I didn't like the fundamentals last year. And you know what? I still don't. Can't justify paying nearly 18 times sales for a company with a 38% growth rate. But thank you. Of course, sometimes we're too conservative. Lemonade came public in July. I didn't give them enough credit for using artificial intelligence to disrupt the insurance industry, which needs some disrupting, believe me. I told you to wait for a pullback below 50, and that's exactly what we got two months later. After that, the stock took off, and while it's gotten crushed over the last couple of da- uh, days, oh yeah, it's down 50% from its peak, it's still up from where it started trading. I love Lemonade, the company. Half the staff uses them. But they're losing tons of money. And the stock sells for nearly 50 times sales. Not earning, sales. Can't justify paying more than $75 for this $89 stock. Now maybe my biggest miss from the class of 2020 was Unity Software, which has a whole video game platform that they license to developers. On the first day it closed at 68 bucks, and I wanted to wait for a pullback below 50. That pullback never came. Unity soared to 175 at its peak in December. It's been crushed lately. At 101, it's still a winner if you got in early. At this point, though, you know what? I'd rather own the newly public Roblox, which is profitable, unlike Unity. It trades at a substantial discount. All right, then there's the much-beloved Palantir, the surveillance and analytics company that did a big direct listing at the end of September. I told you it'd be worth buying below 10 bucks, and then the stock went to 9 and change on the first day. But that was still a pretty guarded recommendation. This thing became a meme stock like GameStop or AMC, jumping to 45 at its peak in January. Since then, it's pulled back to around $24. Though, uh, uh, what do you do with it? I think it's too much of a black box to get a real read on the business, so be careful. I feel a lot more confident if it pulls back below 20 bucks. Finally, we need to talk about DoorDash and Airbnb, which came public in mid-December. Again, I hesitated. Told you I liked them in the double digits, but I misjudged the appetite for both of these stocks right out of the gate. They've both been in the triple digits ever since they started trading. At this point, they've both come down substantially, though, from their highs. I'm not really interested in DoorDash here. It's a lockdown stock with too many competitors. I I talk with them about my my restaurants, but not here. Now, I am a huge fan, though, of Airbnb because it's a reopening play, and long term, it's a true disruptor of the lodging industry. Still, Airbnb will soon be hit with a big lockup expiration, meaning lots of insider selling. Stocks currently at 175. I'd start nibbling if it came down below 157 and then back up the truck if you can get it closer to 117. That would be a gift. The bottom line, though, It's hard not to chase these red-hot IPOs right out of the gate, isn't it? But as we saw from the class of 2020 and from Coinbase today, you'll often get a better price if you're patient enough to let them pull back a few days, a few weeks, or even months later. Stay with Kramer.
1: Coming on, should home gamers be wary about too much of a good thing? Kramer's got a clear-eyed SPAC analysis to help you pull the signal from the noise. Next.
3: All right, now that the SPAC attack has turned into a full on SPAC retreat, a two month route where most of these special purpose acquisition vehicles have been shot to pieces, we need to talk about what went wrong. If you listened to my warnings, you would have rang the register on this cohort before the big rollover. But a lot of people tried to ride this out, and now they are paying. ultimate price. So tonight I want to show you what makes these SPAC deals so dangerous. Don't get me wrong, there have been hundreds of these deals and some of them are actually totally legitimate, with stocks that are actually worth buying into weakness. Still, the whole process is about skirting IPO regulations designed to protect investors, so you need to approach these things with at least an extra dose of skepticism, especially the appointment of the serious and savvy Gary Gensler as SEC chairman. Gary won't do anything rash, not his style, but he's all about protecting consumers, even from themselves. And that's exactly the kind of protection we need from Aaron Spax. That's why tonight I want to highlight five of the most egregious examples just drawn from EV, electric vehicles, alone. that came public by merging with a SPAC. While the whole group's been just hammered mercilessly by the rotation out of speculative growth stocks, they're also weighed down as the dreams that were pitched to investors last year slam headfirst into reality. In other words, I'm talking about SPAC hyperbole, where companies made promises that they could never keep and in some cases had no intention of keeping. So let's take them down. We'll use David Letterman style. Number five. Well, let's see, it's XL Fleet, which makes powertrain systems for hybrid and electric trucks. This one hits a little too close to home because we had them on the show in early March. The short sellers at Muddy Waters Research released a devastating report where they accused XL Fleet of initiating its sales pipeline and its, uh, of, uh, really of just kind of making up its sales pipeline. Yeah, making it up. Mm-hmm. All right, this is something that I'd asked CEO Todd Hines about in our interview the night before. And he deflected rather than giving us an answer about these charges. When the Muddy Waters report came out, management's response was disastrous. Rather than denying the most important allegations, Excel Fleet just quibbled over definitions. Then, when they absolutely reported at the end of March, well, they slashed their forecasts, just as Buddy Waters would have said. Fleet had been guiding for $75 million in sales this year. Well, that's out the window. Now they're only willing to provide guidance for the first quarter, where they expect just $1 million in sales. Hey, that's down 90% from the previous quarter. No wonder the stock's been cut in half since early March. You know what? I'm surprised it isn't down more. Four, canoe. Yes, the company with a modular design platform for electric vehicles. Going to their SPAC merger in December, these guys told the world they were focused on consumer vehicles, think minivans. They also wanted to use a subscription to sales model with autos. I think that's called a lease and they wanted to sell their modular technology to third parties. Last month, we found out that they're ditching the whole plan. Forget the consumer. They want fleet and commercial vehicles. Bye-bye subscriptions. Bye-bye selling their technology. Bye-bye happiness. At the same time, the CFO stepped down. Not encouraging. Even worse, Canoo had touted their partnership with Hyundai to develop an all-electric platform. But now they say they're de-emphasizing the contract engineering business which I think suggests that the uh, Hyundai deal, oh, maybe it's dead. I mean, that's definitely not what the shareholders signed on for. In the last month, canoe stock has sunk from 15 to 9. Now, I can't blame anyone for wanting out. They have, though, answered the time-honored tongue-twister, Canoe, Canoe, Canoe. No. Three, Lordstown Motors, may be the greatest tragedy in the SPAC space. Here's a company that set up shop in an abandoned GM factory with the goal of making an electric pickup truck. Great narrative. But last month, the short-selling research firm Hindenburg published a report that called Lordstown's order book into question. And the stock's been dropping like a lead balloon ever since. The most important allegation? Lordstown CEO Steve Burns kept touting that he had 100,000 pre-orders. Hindenburg called them largely fictitious. In response, Burns came on our air and started waxing philosophical. What is an order, really? What is a pre-order? When is an order not an order? When it's a Lordstown order. Hindenburg also claimed the company's much further away from production than we've been kind of led to believe. Management says they're still on track to start making these things by September. But at this point, I wouldn't take the word for it. Number two! Romeo Power, a company that's working on a better battery. At first glance, this looked like promising because they're in the same business as QuantumScape, which, you know, I like the best of the electric vehicle spots. But it turns out Romeo is the quintessential overpromise on deliver story. Romeo, where art thou? Beats the heck out of me. When the company announced the preliminary fourth quarter numbers later uh, last month, along with some initial guidance for the full year, the numbers were horrifying. In the lead-up to Romeo's merger with RMG Acquisition, they laid out some very bullish forecasts. Well, they were talking about $140 million in revenue for 2021. Oh, well, now that 2021 is upon us, they're guiding for just 18 to $40 The two-for-one split there, maybe three-for-one uh, supply constraints, they cited. Listen, I know that there are supply issues in the auto industry, but that $140 million number was from six months ago. When a company slashes its revenue forecast by 80% in a half year, let's just say that raises eyebrows. At least Romeo gave you a chance to sell. The stock spiked 60% last week after we learned about a long-term supply agreement with Packard, the truck beggar. But since then, it's given up nearly all of the gains because, well, there's, eh, there's not a lot of trust here. Finally, the most egregious example of SPAC hyperbole. Nikola, yeah, it's fitting that this was the first big electric vehicle SPAC merger, the one that shot into the stratosphere and opened the floodgates. Then a few months later, the short sellers again at Hindenburg came out with some wild accusations, many of which proved to be true. Now, Nikola initially talked about making all sorts of electric and even hydrogen fuel cell powered trucks. But it turns out a lot of these were merely in the concept stage. They made big promises about the proprietary technology before we learned that they'd been purchasing many of the components components they claimed to make in-house. They announced a huge collaboration with General Motors, but GM wasn't committed to doing anything. And after the Hindenburg report, they backed away from most of it. Trevor Milton, the now former CEO, was incredibly promotional. He claimed that Nikola had trucks, quote, Coming off the line, end quote, in Germany. Uh, They didn't. Maybe the most ridiculous was when Nikola doctored a video to make it look like their truck was moving under its own power when it was really rolling downhill. The one thing I'll say about Nikola, they must be strong to push an 18-wheeler enough to get it rolling even downhill. Impressive feat, but not one that makes me want to buy the stock. Now that Nikola's got new management and the stock's plunged at 12 bucks, There's a case to be made for owning this one, but only for speculation. The point, though, is that when these SPAC plays say something that sounds too good to be true, it's probably too good to be true. Honestly, it's hard to stop at just five of these because there are so many other examples of SPAC bogosity. So I'm putting everyone involved in this process on notice, right here, right now, we are bringing back the wall of shame. And SPACs provide a lot of grist for the shame mill. The SPAC managers who orchestrated these deals, they should be embarrassed. The bankers should be embarrassed. The CEOs who agreed to reverse mergers, made ridiculous forecasts should be embarrassed. But I think they're laughing all the way to the bank. And regular investors like you have been spacked. Spack with a 2x4. However, before I add any names to the SPAC wall of shame, you know what? I'm going to give everyone involved a grace period. If you're working on one of these deals, you're a banker, you know, you, you got a few more weeks to rip off the band-aid and level with your investors. After that, I have a particular set of skills that makes me a nightmare for people like you. But the bottom line, after the, that grace period ends, I'm coming after any SPAC play that seems to be following in the footsteps of XL Fleet, or Canoe, 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 or Lordstown Motors, Sing that, or Romeo Power, where art thou, or Nikola, of course. Because this kind of thing must be quarantined, and there are no false positives. Let's take some calls. Why don't we go to Mark in Iowa? Mark! Hi, Jim. Thanks to Thank you to you
1: and your pleasant staff for taking my call today.
3: My staff is so much nicer than I am. It's amazing. <laughs> Go ahead. Well, I appreciate the opportunity.
1: Okay. EV batteries are going to do nothing but increase in sales. However, this battery stock has had a lawsuit filed against it, questioning their product's quality and viability down about $90 from its all-time high. What do you think of QS QuantumScape?
3: That's Jagdeep Singh. I think he's remarkable. I think he's done some great work. It's one of the few specs I like. At $15 billion, he's got the batteries that are going to work. I encourage you to buy more. Yeah particular set of skills. It's going to be a nightmare for these guys. Some companies should consider themselves on notice. I'm bringing back the wall of shame, and it's for you! It's time to get your act together. Now, much more made money moneyhead I'm thinking of the technology in the restaurant biz with par technology after the latest acquisition to get a better taste for its potential. Taste, uh-huh. Then, it's said it, I've said it before, I'm going to say it again. Own Apple, don't trade it! I'm slicing you an analyst's comments on the stock's performance and giving you my take on how to approach it. And all your calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. I'm excited about this. Last week, Par Technology, which makes point-of-sale technology for restaurants and retailers, announced an intriguing deal. They're buying a little company called Punch for $500 million in cash and stock. Now, Punch, with two H's, by the way, is a market-leading customer engagement platform. Think loyalty programs, commercial campaigns, and AI-based marketing. This deal greatly improves Par's suite of software as a service. That's right, cloud-based offerings. Beyond that, though, the transaction got some interesting financing arrangements. Par brought in a couple of backers to help it raise the cash, including an old friend of the show, Ron Shake, the founder and former CEO of Panera Bread, who now runs an investment fund called Act Three Holdings. If Shake's on board, I want to be on board because when it comes to the restaurant business, this guy's money good and he's not just on board. He's joining the board of directors. Don't take it from me, though. Let's check in with Savneet Singh. He's the president and CEO of Par Technology. And Ron Sheikh, the managing partner of Act 3 Holdings. Gentlemen, welcome to Man Money. Hey, Jim. How are you doing, buddy? Oh, <laughs> man, Ron, it's so good. Hey, how are you, Savneet? Nice to meet you. It's so good to hear from you, Ron. I'm going to start with you because, Ron, I don't know if people knew, but you had the most, I'd say, most successful loyalty program in history of Panera, but you don't brag about things, and you know the customers. So let's talk about what you're bringing to the party here, and how come you're so excited to join the Par Technology Group, Jim? Before we do that, let's talk about why I'm so excited to be on your
4: show. I decided to go with the Kramer look, in 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 isolation. What do you think?
3: <laughs> I like it. I like it a lot. It's <laughs> it's certainly my look. So so what's happening? <laughs>
4: I decided to like, take the Kramer show, take the look. All right. So here's the deal. Um, Subni Singh, who you're going to, you're, you're speaking to, he's been CEO for a year and a half in this company that's nearly a half decade, a, a half century old. In the last year and a half, the stock is up fourfold. More importantly, you have a situation where we're coming in, T Rowe Price is coming in. And you also have the founders of the company we're buying, Punch, who are taking this acquisition to cash, and they're investing it, they're holding it in equity. This company has the potential to really dominate in enterprise-class restaurants offering what is the holy grail of technology in this industry, which is essentially unified commerce, to have one system, the heart of the system, that flows throughout the restaurant. It's what we've been searching for in building digital systems. It's what PAR delivers. Well,
3: uh, Sadni, let me uh, ask you to just give a little background here. I'm looking at a 20-year chart of your stock. Uh, And frankly, it did nothing for 20 years. And then you got there. What did you do to make this company into a growth company? You know, I think PAR had
5: a, a challenge history for the last 20 years, as you mentioned. But one of the smartest things it did was that it, it sort of stumbled onto a great acquisition in 2014. And really what I did was come in and focus the business. I think we decided to sort of take all of our capital allocation, focus it on that software business, and more more than anything else, just hire great talent. We went out and said, if we want to be a great business, we really need to find the best talent in the world to come to PAR. And so much of the last 18 months, two years, has been focusing our capital allocation on software and then really rebuilding the entire management team from, you know, the likes of Google, Uber, and, and trying to figure out how do we build, attract the best talent, retain the
3: best talent, and, and then build the best product. Well, you certainly been able to do that. Ron, uh, I know that Panera was a tight ship and it was a great enterprise company. Uh, the one thing I, I know the companies that uh, PAR is looking at and working with, Ron, these are all companies that need you and they need loyalty programs. But explain to me what PAR does that is so different, say, from what Square does, which tells me they've got the best point of sale system. Well, here's the
4: deal, Jim. We've been trying for over a decade in the restaurant industry, anybody playing the game is trying to build a unified system. What we have is multiple different disparate systems. We have customer systems. We have loyalty systems. We have POS systems. We have delivery systems. It all flows into one data warehouse. We then need to disperse that information into data, into kitchen display systems and the like. What PAR is building, what Safneef and his team's vision is, is one unified system. The problem we've traditionally had is these systems, these individual systems didn't talk to each other. The problem that enterprise level companies from 30 stores up to two or 3,000 had is they didn't have the scale and the technical skills to properly integrate this. So it was inefficient and ineffective. What, what, What PAR is now offering is the potential for an integrated system that's plug and play and works far more effectively.
3: Well, I have to, you're absolutely right. I mean, look, I know you're at the enterprise level, not at the level of, I, I am with our two uh, restaurants going to be opening. But we've got, <laughs> I was listening to you, we have four different inputs, Ron. I mean, it's exactly as described. I mean, it's hapless. You're trying to run a business. When you Taco Bell or when you're five guys, I mean, you can't do this. You have to have this service. This could be huge for this company, Ron.
4: Exactly. Jim, you said it. Walk into a restaurant, you're going to see one tablet for Uber Eats, one for DoorDash, one for the register. It's craziness. And it's all different information and nobody controls their customer. And none of it speaks to the kitchen. That's the challenge. And what Par can offer is that in an integrated way. And with this acquisition, we're bolting it together. And the reality is that that this is one of the most powerful opportunities that exists in restaurant technology. This is the sweet spot. This is the heart.
3: As someone who owns two pay- places, i, I, I got to tell you, congratulations to Sabnit Singh. Sabnit, this is it. I mean, I've got my four systems. If you want to see them, you're not down at our level. You're a big enterprise, but your stock is way too cheap from what I just heard. And you've got the best guy on your board imaginable. I want to thank Ron Shay. Ron, I, I miss you so much. Uh, you, Ron's the founder of Panera Bread, managing partner back 3. He's got my look. Uh, and we've got Sandeep Singh, part Technology CEO. I, hear I was going to say it's a 400%. Forget about it. I need what you guys have. Man, money's back into the break.
1: Stick around.
3: Man, make a suggestion. I would stay with him.
1: The lightning round is coming up next.
3: And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Ski Dad, it's over. The nightmare. You know what? Let's start with CB in Texas. CB.
2: How you doing, Jim?
3: I am having just doing, a dynamite Jim? day. How about you? It's good.
2: It's good. Doing great. Yeah. I'm a long longtime fan and a big admirer, and uh, you're my hero.
3: Thank you, man. Thank you a lot.
2: Yeah, you, you're welcome. And, and um, yeah, my stock I wanted to get your thoughts on is uh, the symbols, K-E-Y-S, is KeySight Technologies.
3: I know KeySight. This thing has been just red hot and I really like it. It deserves to be uh, wireless, electronic measurement services. Very hot business and I like it. I got to go to Dan in New York. Dan.
5: Hey Jim, this is Dan in Saratoga Springs. I wanted to ask you about Amarin pharmaceutical symbol AMRN. Total spec just recently- Total
3: Spec. You know, just a complete spec. The only reason why you should buy it is because it's a spec. It is not, it is not necessarily a great company. Alright, I need to go to Dave in California. Dave.
2: Jimmy Chill. Thanks for taking my call. First time caller. Chill Man here. Alright. Hey. Uh, my stock today is uh, PSFB PaySafe. It went public about two weeks ago on the 31st of March, and stock has come down quite a, uh, about 11% since then. I just want to get your thoughts on going forward, and would you be a okay, buyer this at Okay, this is these a level. Bill
3: Foley company. It's a Bill Foley company, and I believe in the company. There's some people feel it doesn't have enough special technology, and there's not enough moat. I disagree. Down 10%, I want to buy. By the way, there's a stock I like. I don't hate every SPAC. Those are the guy hate every spec. Well, I don't. How about Franco in New York? Franco.
1: Uh, hello, sir. Hey, hey, how are you doing?
3: Hey, hey, not the goodbye.
1: What's up? Uh, hey, hey, uh, quick question. What do you think about the stock um, Xilinx? Well, Xilinx S-L-N-X. is be AMD.
3: And, boy, you, we can't... I cannot wait for that deal to close. So we don't have to read every day about how AMD is going to be crushed by Intel. And, you know, I'm getting really tired of this whole narrative, And I think that's a deal closed. I like it. Let's go to Mike in Kentucky. Mike. Booyah, Jimmy. It's Mike from Louisville. I'm asking about a stock right. name. The symbol is H-G-E-N. Oh, man. People, man. They have a game. Yeah, now be careful. Game- this is a big Twitter stock meaning I'm constantly being harassed and trying to recommend it. And because of that, I can't do it. But I have to tell you that, it, it look, it's a monoclonal antibody. If you want monoclonal antibody, you want Regeneron. And so should the CDC, who I'm getting very tired of. Why don't you just make it so nobody takes a vaccine and nobody gets to use the drip when they go to the hospital and just rain the, uh, the impending doom and get Stephen King in there? Let's go to Scott in Rhode Island. Scott.
0: What's going on? Jim Big Booyah from Lincoln, Rhode Island.
3: My uh, my stock is Transmedic Group TMDX, the FDA. Um, you know what? I happen to be very close. This is about um, end-stage organ failure uh, patients and, uh, and transplant. And I happen to know I'm actually doing a fundraiser for, for a, uh, a charity that does this. It's very, very hard. And uh, I'm going to say that it's not going to be – I don't think it's going to be a profitable business anytime soon. Well – And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round!
1: The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Coming up, how did a lost watch fortify one of Kramer's most reliable pieces of market wisdom? Find out when Mad Money returns.
3: Yesterday, someone stole my Apple Watch. i go into to the grocery store with my wife, Lisa, and when I got home, it wasn't on my arm. Uh, at first, I thought I'd taken it off for the lightning round. But when I checked the dais, which is what I call this thing, nothing there. So, of course, I freaked out. I mean, you would have thought somebody kidnapped my dog. Lisa came downstairs to deal with her obviously disturbed husband, and while she's listening to me rant about whether or not to call the police, she reaches under the chair and says, this Apple Watch? Imagine a rampaging wild animal getting hit with a tranquilizer dart. Well, that was me. I bring this up not to highlight that my wife is a saint for putting up with me. Hey, goes without saying, but to show you just how much Apple, the watch, the products mean to me. And this is why I'm always telling you to own it. Don't trade it. About two weeks ago, a very smart analyst from Bernstein, Tony Saganegi, was on CNBC. He'd been asked if Tesla or Apple were worth holding on to, given that they were down 15 and nearly 10% from their highs, respectively. Tony eloquently explained how they'd gotten too high, mentioning that the top 20% of tech stocks were trading at 17 times revenues, the highest since the dot-com bubble. So far, so good. But then he said something that nobody will remember. Nobody but me. And I quote, I would be looking to sell, to sell positions in Tesla. For Apple, I'm not sure there's a catalyst in the next six months, end quote. That's a problem for Tony because, quote, it's valuations at six or seven years highs. Well, end quote. He then traced out all the good news that we got last year and how it meant Apple would now be up against difficult comparisons. Now, I'm not going to give him a hard time about Tesla, even though the stocks rocketed higher, because Tesla's a wild trader. But Apple, Tony should know better. His comments are the textbook reason I say own it, don't trade it. Granted, everything he said about Apple is true. Every bit of it. Tony's a terrific analyst when it comes to the facts and figures of companies. He's very compelling, arguably too compelling. He speaks with great authority about Apple. Apple, the company, but not the stock. And the stock is not the company, people. You got a rude reminder of that. In fact, if you chose to sell it at 119 after hearing Tony's thoughts, because it's now at 132. That said, you shouldn't be angry at Tony if he convinced you to give up on Apple. You should be angry at yourself for thinking you could somehow get out and then get back in at a lower level six months later. Now, we don't know why Apple's been roaring. The truth is, we almost never do. But it's precisely because of this very clinically dismissive call that I always tell you to stick with it and not be shaken out by it. Now, you might ask, how could I possibly know more about Apple stock than one of the best analysts on Wall Street? I mean, I'm a guy, a generalist, who covers hundreds, no, thousands of stocks. He's a specialist who covers only the most important text. I'll tell you why I have a better understanding. It's products like the watch. You see, I can't live without this thing. Like the iPhone, it's how I live my life. Even as I went with Brightling and Breitling only for years and years. When I thought it had been stolen... I was trying to imagine what my next day would look like without it. And I realized that something I bought as a total afterthought accessory to see if it worked had become a necessity, something I couldn't live without just a few years later. And the Breitling's in a drawer, and that thing cost me a house. Tony's smarter than I am. He is. He's got a better read on Apple, the company. He does. But I know Apple the watch, or Apple the Mac, or Apple the iPads, not to mention Apple the subscription bills I pay without even noticing. They're why I've been right about the stock for years, while so many genius skeptics have gotten it wrong all the way up. With their endless buys to hold and buys to sells and their poorly conceived trading advisories, they've spent nearly 20 years outsmarting themselves. So the next time the sirens of selling come for Apple, tie yourself to the mask. Keep your watch on, because they're almost always going to lead you astray. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere and I promise i to find it just for you right here on man. Money. I'm Jim Kramer. See you tomorrow. The news with Shepherd Smith starts now.
2: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery.